Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to the Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the biggest talk health radio station. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, founders, leaders and clinicians who are driving the health tech revolution in the UK and beyond. I am a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself and I am hugely passionate about the individuals and companies that are changing the world. Thanks again. Um, Just before we start the show, I always like to thank everyone. Thanks again to everyone for listening and tuning in. Uh, whether you're listening live um, to UK Health Radio or whether you're listening to us um, later on in the week through Spotify, Apple or Audible. Hello. Welcome to everybody. Thanks for being one of over 200,000 people that are listening every month. The show wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So thank you for tuning in. Um, please remember to follow the show, which is at Health Tech Hour and me, Steve Roost. I'm on LinkedIn and also on Twitter as Steve Roost CEO. Um, and please also follow the station, which is at UK Health Radio. We have a ton of presenters on doing all kinds of interesting content. So please make sure you follow um, to stay on top of everything. Now, on to today's show. We have one of the most successful health tech entrepreneurs of the last 10 years, CEO and founder of Babylon Health, uh, Ali Parza. Babylon Health, if, for those of you who don't know, but it's a, it's, I would imagine that many of our listeners know Babylon Health, is one of the world's fastest growing digital health companies with the mission of making high quality healthcare accessible and affordable to every single person on earth. Um, I, I, as we do, as everyone knows, we do quite a lot of research into the show before we do the show. Um, and even, even I, even knowing about Babylon, was blown away by some of the statistics their stats from 2021. So over 24 million people have access to always on healthcare through Babylon. And in 2021, they helped a patient once every five seconds um, all over the world and have a 95% user retention rate. So which is unbelievably good. Um, Babylon's available across the world, the UK, US, Middle East and Africa um, and is but, but started in the UK. So Babylon is also hailed as the poster child of the digital health revolution and on a personal note Ali Parza who's the CEO and founder was actually there at the beginnings of of my company PocDoc um, taking a meeting over the Christmas period where I literally showed him an idea on on a napkin and sort of danced around waving my phone around so um, all in all it's an honor to have Ali on the show so Ali welcome to Health Tech Hour how are you? You know, after your wonderful introduction, how can I be anything but excellent? Thank you so much for your generosity with your words, Steve. Oh, no problem. It's great to have you on. So Babylon is a truly global company, but where exactly are you today? Where, where are you calling in from? I am in London. I'm here to visit uh, my son, and uh, and it's great to take a little bit of time away from spending time with a teenager to spend time with uh, with a grown-up. Good, nice. So um, as regular listeners will know, the show's in three parts. The first part is really more of an origins part, which is how you became to doing all of the amazing things that you're doing. The middle part, I think, will focus on all of the incredible things that Babylon is doing to what has done and is doing to change the face of healthcare, not just in the UK, but, but across the world. And then the final part is I'd really like to try and 
tap into your experience and wisdom around advice for anyone listening, whether they are in healthcare or not, whether they're on an entrepreneurial journey or whether they um, are thinking about it uh, and what the future might hold in terms of some predictions. So um, let's let's start. So it, it's true that you weren't always in healthcare. Is that correct? How, how was your what was your journey like to healthcare? How did you sort of find it, so to speak? So I, I used to be an investment banker. And among other things, I, I started my career as a failed academic physicist. Uh, and uh, uh, I built a company. I got lucky. It did very well. And when my PhD came to an end, I sold that. And I saw the investment bankers who sold it for me, even though they were pretty low-level in ba- ba- bank. Uh, per hour of the work they did, they did much better than I did <laughs> building the company. So I said, why don't I? And, and you know, I was an immigrant and I was a kind of an outsider, and I saw these really good-looking guys with with beautiful suits, and I said, "Well, why don't I just kind of try and join them?" So I became an investment banker for a while. Um, great career, enjoyed it a lot, uh, but it wasn't really for me. Uh, and it's not because I have anything against bankers or the profession. I think they do a very important job of connecting capital to people who need capital. But uh, it wasn't for me because it was project-based, and I come from a family of people who build things and I always wanted to build things. So anyways, I uh, I was doing a series of surgery. And so when my son, my first daughter was born, child was born, I kind of quit and sat back deciding what I would want to do in life. I was doing a series of surgery on my knee and I saw the best private hospitals in the country. And I thought, if it's that bad, surely I can do better than this. So I started the chain of hospitals, Circle Group, which is today the largest chain of hospital in the UK. Uh, we got really lucky, did incredibly well. But uh, and that, that was the journey to healthcare. And what, uh, just to pick up on that point, what did you think was so bad about the existing experience in private healthcare that prompted you to, to, to start Circle? Or what was the problem that Circle solved? Well, look, at the time, I looked at the bill that my insurance company paid. And at the time, and we're going a long way back, 2003, 2004, maybe even before that, 2001, two. At the time, it was over a thousand pounds a night. And the hospital at best can be described as a two or a three star hotel. Right? Okay. And right. you just sit back and say, why are we paying this much? I mean, it's not that difficult to analyze the cost, right? Um, and it wasn't just that. The tiniest thing was char- costing so much. Mm-hmm. Then when I was talking to the nurses who were looking after me, they were complaining about how badly managed they are, how they right. feel completely isolated. The doctors were even feeling worse. And, and I thought, why don't we create a chain of hospitals that are brand new, get people like Norman Foster to design it, get Michelin chef, uh, uh, chefs to cook in it. Um, do it at the more reasonable prices mm. and uh, and then make the doctors, nurses and everybody who works on it half owners of the hospital. So we uh, created a cooperative where they were half owners. We oh, I didn't know. Them. I actually did, I didn't know that. That's interesting. That must have been an extremely um, positively disruptive move. Right. That must have been the first time that had happened. Is that right? In healthcare, That's true. It was, it, that was true. And it was amazing. I mean, we had seventeen hundred consultants as partners or lining up to build their own hospitals. Uh, We had uh, land all over the country that we had secured. And then, like always, and it happens to all of us, and Steve, I'm sure you have a lot of stories to tell, 
life takes over in a ways that you did not calculate. So we raised at the time for a startup over half a billion dollars from uh, uh, Lehman Brothers and Bank, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland oh, to wow. finance uh, building this chain of hospitals. Uh, and then 2007, 2008 crisis happened. And while they right. did a lot of due diligence on us, <laughs> <I guess laughs> we never really did due diligence on them to figure out. <laughs> so they went bust. And and it was a period of tough time trying to raise the money, keep the momentum going. And anyways, at the end, uh, we got lucky, did well. And today is the largest chain of hospitals in the country. And he, actually, the hospital groups who at the time were trying to kill us because we were the new kids in town. They each had a monopoly or duopoly in different yeah. towns. Uh, they they now sold to Circle and, uh, wow. and Circle and, is doing really well. And back in the day when it was this thousand pounds a night for a two star hotel with a, you know, underpaid staff, unhappy staff mismanagement. Was that delta in the in the cost? Was that just being taken off the top by the whoever the owner was? Or was it just was it inefficiencies? Or what, <laughs> like, I guess it might have been a mix of things. I'm just I'm just curious. Look, I, I, I don't want to be too kind of controversial here, but I think no. uh, I think what happened to the private hospital industry is, is is almost a menace that happened to so much of British industry, which was. If you remember at the time, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, private equity, which I think is completely misnamed, it really isn't private (laughs) equity, is leverage buyout, uh, was very fashionable. So almost every hospital group in Britain, very good groups, uh, BMI, Aspire, they were all acquired by different private equity firms who leveraged the hell out of that, which is a fancy word of saying, put so much debt on the business that it crippled it, yeah. uh, but so that they could put the minimum amount of equity in. And then they sold it. Like one bought BMI for 400 million, sold it two years later for 800 million. The other one then right. 800 million, but was sold for 2.4 billion. If I remember correctly, we're going sure. 20 years back almost. <clears throat> and, uh, and then these businesses were levered with so much debt and so much interest payment and such high rents because often then they took the real estate they, away. Yeah, they saw and, yeah, it's what happened on the high street with Debenhams and, you know, House of Fraser and all those people. They sold their very valuable, very valuable um, locations and then had to rent them back, right? You got it, Steve. You got yeah. it. And so that was what was happening to the hospital industry at the time. Huge shame. Um, no one's fault. Great people, yeah. including in the management, working really hard, but structurally they were all challenged. Um, no, I understand that. So at, at Circle, because this is where I want to sort of try and transition a little bit into how the ideas for Babylon came about. At the time when you were running Circle, set Circle up, what was what did digital healthcare mean at that point? Did it exist, or what? What, what was that at the time? So at the beginning, it didn't exist. I mean, we tried to make Circle the most technologically advanced hospital group in the world at the time, we thought. And we were, but but that's more akin to putting a lot of technology in a shop, right? Or in a hotel or whatever you call it. Um, It wasn't a digital first approach. It was a digitally enhanced, if you wish, approach. And, uh, but, but what, I understood, and, and I think with your work, and I love to hear you about this, Steve, I think with your work, you even understand it better than most, is that what we understood is by the time we get people in a hospital, 
we almost lost the battle, right? We're waiting for crisis emergencies to happen, is and then we try to fix it, usually at really high uh, cost and yeah. usually very late, right? Uh, and 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 as a result, you know, five out of seven billion people in the world almost have no access to hospitals. And mm-hmm. we thought, why can we not do with healthcare what Google did with information? Why can we not make it accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of everybody? Uh, on earth? Why don't we take most of the healthcare most people need and put it on devices most people already have? And and that doesn't deliver all of their healthcare, but it's a heck of a lot better than what most people in the world have. That that was the transition. It was that realization that we're fixing the wrong problem mm-hmm. at the wrong stage of its development. Particularly when there are so many people that don't have access to that type of care anyway. Right. And, and there are waiting lists anyway for even routine things. So exactly how do you bring that kind of care closer to the person and prevent them going to hospital in the first place or at least reduce it? Right. Mitigate it in some way, shape or form. That's right. Um, and so but when at what point did you when did the idea for Babylon really start to come about and how did it coalesce beyond being a discussion around? Oh, hey, wouldn't it be kind of cool if we could do this or wow, this could be interesting <laughs> into like, my goodness, this is where this we're going to do this. So it really started coming about around 2010, 2011. I was, I had just taken Circle public or was about to take it public. I ended up with a a board of directors. Uh, I wasn't even thinking, you know, I was a little bit more naive. I thought I owned, I created the company. So when the, one of the investors said, do you want me to put uh, a board of directors together? I said, sure, uh, knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. And this guy who was a VC guy, he and he was an ex-banker, actually an ex-guy from Goldman Sachs. He basically went and created a board of directors of people as risk averse, as traditional, <laughs> as unimaginative <laughs> as himself. Right, right. now, I have one or two good, uh, two uh, good uh, board members, but the chairman, mm. oh my gosh, or the rest. I mean, it doesn't I mean, look, that, yeah, that, started about how. So I yeah. all of a sudden looked around <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, look at what I've surrounded myself with, right? I mean, right. in a way, you need to ask yourself what kind of person at the age of 70, 75 kind of needs to do that job, right? I yeah, mean, right. Or wants um, to. Or wants, or wants to. to. Exactly right. Or has to, right? Yeah. So, I mean, by definition, you're just kind of screwed up somewhere right so anyways they they, they uh so i just and and uh, uh the, the the capital markets were getting really hard if you remember 2010 yeah. 20 no, i mean that was a nightmare nightmare <clears throat> so we couldn't raise a lot of money to build private hospitals i went and won a series of contracts to win nhs hospitals mm-hmm. then steve one day this chairman i forget his name somebody called michael Kirk or some Kirkwood or something like this. Anyways, this guy comes in to me and says, I hear your propositions for running many more NHS hospitals. We were doing one very successfully, yeah. uh, which we had turned around. And then he said, the problem, however, is they need to from now on meet three conditions. And I said, what are those three conditions? He said, first, they should have no financial challenges. Two, they should have no, cl- <laughs> no clinical challenges. And here, this one up. Third, third, there should be 
no competition. <laughs> the NHS what? should hand it to you. Like, what? I just, like, you oh can't, my god! You, you can't just make make this you thing up. You literally can't make that up. You I can't mean, make it up. So, I, so I just, I just thought, you know what? This is time for me to give up because I, I mean, look, we used to triple our revenue a year every year until wow. we went, wow. until we went public, and then when we went public, we didn't add a dollar, a dollar to the revenue or a pound to the revenue yeah. of Babylon for, uh, sorry, Circle for a while because of everything with these guys were a no. So I decided that, look, what can I do? So I took the idea of Circle to them, right? The Babylon to it. And said, so, look, I can build this thing, uh, very little capital at the time compared to a hospital. We will diversify. And again, the guy said, uh, don't get distracted, focus on, just, uh, yeah, it's just wasted. You fo- focus on finding those and people think, in healthcare. That focus, focus on finding those people in healthcare with no financial yeah. issues. And, and so, um, what, so <laughs> no why am I telling? Why am I telling you this story? Because hopefully, if anybody's listening, they fall in, in in a few camps. You either fall in the camps of the entrepreneurs who want to do the right thing, have the creativity, the ideas, the drive. And then they hear all these naysayers, right? Or you fall in the camp of the people who are joined or investors, da, da, da. And my point to you is, if you're an investor, if you sit on a board, you're there to back the team who've done it up, right? Your job is to be mentors, to be helpers, to be assistants. You're, you're not the police, not the editors, you're not the naysayers, right? Yeah. Uh, and often... The boards make that mistake. They believe that, or the investors make that mistake. They believe that they're there so that they can control. Their their advantage, and it's a very important job, is allocation of capital, is to decide that how do I allocate this capital? Who are the right team to back? But if they were any, if they thought they should be running the companies, then frankly, it pays a lot more to run a company then be a VC if your company is super successful, right? So yeah, why don't they do that? And if you're the entrepreneur, look, at that stage, I need to take a, the, the choice that do I keep on backing this bunch or do I just go start from scratch? And think about it. It's hard, right? You just yeah. built it something. It's highly successful. It's going to grow. And you basic, and it's your baby. You created it. It came from yeah. one idea in your head, right? And then you have to walk out and say, you know what? I'm going to start from scratch. Day one, employee number one, I'm going to start from scratch. Um, and and that's that's what we had to do. And that's what we achieved, right? So we, we started from scratch all over again. And my thing to entrepreneurs is always, always back yourself against the negativity of others. Because even if you're wrong, as long as you're humble enough to, to be a seeker of truth, to be a scientist as opposed to a preacher mm. and an ideologue, you will change. You constantly change, iterate your ideas. I mean, Babylon, which must have changed it a hundred times in terms of what we wanted to do, yeah. right? Uh, so, but always back yourself as opposed to allow others to let you know what you no. want. I, I completely agree. And I think that that's one of the things that I've certainly learned over, you know, not just this venture, but previous ventures, which is that ultimately, I mean, look, my background is in sales and commercial where and thankfully I got a, I got trained that you were going to hear no a heck of a lot more than you were going to hear. Yes. You know, like from a, from, you know, from my early twenties, I was out on the road doing, you know, being a road warrior and, um, 
you know, you, you kind of get, you, you know, you're going to, you expect the no. And actually the no, the, I, I always, I always think that, and, and I, this is when, I, if I, if anyone asks me about this or it comes up in any kind of training or anything, I, I, I salespeople crave the no, because the no gives you data. The no is data if you're brave enough to ask for it, right? So one of the things that surprised me over the years when I've been raising capital is um, when people turn me down, which obviously happens, right? And it's not for everyone. Investors do different things. They make their own choices as well. They should, like you said, about so allocating capital. So they should, right? So it's not even their money Absolutely. most of the time. It's someone else's money. Yeah. So they should, they, should be, they should do whatever they think is best in the interest of the people that have invested in their funds. But um, when they say no, that... I always say, could you tell me why? Can we have a call? Can you explain? And almost to a person, they say, oh, no one ever asks. I rarely hear from people. I rarely hear from people after I say no. And it's like, well, you have to be able to divest. As much as it is your baby, you have to understand how the market views it. You have to understand how other people view it and take that feedback on board in order to grow and adapt, you know, because otherwise it's just you kind of raging against the storm. You know, and, you know, and sometimes that works, right? Some people, sometimes that, that does, that, that can pay off, but most of the time it doesn't. So actually, you know, having to go through that process of, of, of hearing the no, as long as you're brave enough to actually go and ask the why, I think is, is, is the best way to do it. I couldn't agree more. I think that you're going to go to a commercial break. But we are. after gonna, that, we may come see. back and talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Look, you're running my show for me, Ali. Do you want to, you want to, <laughs> the, um, I think we are going to break for a commercial break and then we'll be back in a couple of minutes and then we can talk all about Babylon. But yes, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. How good are vitamin C supplements? Usually only a small proportion of vitamin C actually reaches your cells and has a positive effect. Whereas the high absorption levels of Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C help maintain optimal vitamin C levels in your body and strengthen your immune system. Now get 10% off when you choose Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C capsules. Just quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Do you suffer from pain? B-Cure Laser, a home-use CE-approved medical device for the effective treatment of pain, is now available in the UK. The results of a double-blind trial has shown that B-Cure Laser offers a significant reduction in pain compared to the placebo group. To get your special B-Cure offer now, call free on 0808 501 5122 or Google Radio Pro London. B-Cure Laser. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with Ali Parza, CEO and founder of Babylon. So um, let's jump forward a little bit. So you've, you're, you're, what was the original mission um, for Babylon? What was the original problem? So not the mission. What was the problem that you identified that, that led you to create the solution that was Babylon? Like the real core kernel. I think the problem, the mission for Babylon from day one was the mission it is today. And we said healthcare is inaccessible and affordable and the quality is rather varied for everyone on earth, right? So if, if you go back to basics of healthcare, everybody's trying to say 
if value in healthcare is like value anything else, it's quality over price. And if quality, I think it was uh, Michael Porter who defined it in healthcare as clinical outcome plus uh, members' experience. So if it's accessibility versus and quality, and let's say cost is affordability, that triangle of accessibility, quality, affordability has been the problem everyone in the world is trying to uh, handle right in Europe, we are good at quality, we are good at affordability. We by and large suck on accessibility, right? I mean, okay. almost everywhere we have to wait a long time to get access to our things. In the United States, they have much more accessibility, much more as good as in quality, but affordability is just yeah, it's awful, average. right? And yeah. the rest of the world, different degrees of each. So, we thought, can we make that our mission? So, we wrote a mission statement day one that can you make that we believe it's possible to make healthcare quality care quality healthcare accessible affordable and put it in the hands of every human being on earth and today i believe that as much as i ever did and if you look at what we've done with the help of an open minded government who cares for its people and therefore is care to execute in a country as financially poor as rwanda where within minutes now you can dial 880 and talk to a Babylon doctor, wherever you are in the most remote parts of the country. If they can solve the problem, why can't everywhere else? I think it is absolutely possible today. Assuming you put the cultural, the human barriers away to make healthcare accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of everybody. I think the rest of it is not a technology problem, is not a resource problem. All of that we can almost solve and what we've done in Rwanda, what we've done in UK, what we're doing in some of the poorest communities in the United States shows it can be done. The rest is uh, technology is easy. People are hard, right? <laughs> the rest um, is a culture issue. And, uh, so let's go into that. What is that culture? What, what do you think that that cultural issue or the cultural, <clears throat> head, cultural headwinds or however you want to express it? Like, so I agree with you. Technology is, I mean, the technology has been there for a really long time. You know, and, and, and these things can be solved. And often, I mean, I'm sure that you heard it when you started Babylon. Uh, in fact, I know that you did where, you know, within the healthcare services, people are like, oh, patients don't want to have a digital interaction. They want to see a doctor themselves. And you're like, is that really true? I'm not sure that's really true. That might be true of some people, but actually I'm not sure, you know, a large majority of people are quite happy talking to people through a screen now. So, you know, um, but I don't know, what do you think that, how would you, because for example, clearly there's a difference between the attitude or well, not a difference, but it seems like Rwanda has a very open-minded, like you said, attitude to Babylon and, and, and digital delivery and, you know, mobile first sort of healthcare. What's particular about that place versus potentially some of the other places with more of a cultural headwind? I, I think what is different about countries like Rwanda and is that they don't have a vested interest to protect in a way that we do or other parts of the world does. Um, and when I say people are hard, what I don't mean is the consumers. I, I actually think that we have an industry, it's a $10 trillion industry, is one of the world's largest, which we call healthcare. And then you and I often say, oh, it's broken. And I don't think the healthcare sector is broken by any stretch of imagination. I just think it's misnamed. It's mm. not a healthcare industry. It's a sick care industry. Yeah. I hardly know anyone who is involved in this industry who's in the job of keeping people healthy 
and avoiding their crisis and emergencies. Most people in this industry get paid, hospitals get full, they get the revenue, clinics the same, when people get sick and they build them. They even call it fee-for-service. You go to a hospital, sometimes in the United States, the job is really clear. If you have a room in here, this is how many MRI you need to generate. This is how many really? things. Well, I didn't I mean, know it was that. Wow. I mean, honestly, if anybody thinks that there is not pressure to use and create bills and revenue in it just, you know, even yeah. even our own hospitals, like which are paid by DRG, by payment, by result, by, by activities, you know, people, I mean, hospitals say like, what is our ancillary revenue this year? And can we make it more? And how do we increase? Right. I mean, it's, if, right. if anybody, if you want to bury our head under the sand and say, no, that doesn't happen. <clears throat> I mean, talk to the CFO of most hospitals or the CEOs right. and the pressures that are on them on increasing revenue and so on and so forth. So, so the problem is not that anybody's doing anything wrong. The problem is that in a sick care industry, you get paid to treat the sick. And therefore people do what their economic interests are, not because incentives are, not because they're selfish or they're bad, but because they have to make that institution work. They're paying people's salaries, their jobs, right? That institution needs to survive. The community needs it because when they get sick, uh, they need it to be there. So this is no criticism. This is just the reality of what life is. And we have to open our eyes and see it. I think where things are harder is that we need to actually move away from that, Steve. And you're doing an amazing job in your company of saying that, why do we wait until we have crisis and emergencies? Why don't we foresee it? Why don't we diagnose before the problem? You know, what we do is, it's what I used to do 20 years ago. I used to drive my car until it broke down. And then I took it to Mm -hmm. a garage who fixed it. You yep. and I don't do that anymore because we buried yep. so many sensors in our cars that it uh, uh, picks up enough signals that can pre-warn us when something's going wrong so we can avoid those crises. And companies like yours, and I'd love to hear from you because yeah. you've, you've done this, is have seen that, right? They said, Look, why don't so, I make diagnostics easy, right? Yeah, so we... Um... We started with a similar system constraint for the business, which was basically, how could you do diagnostics if you just had a smartphone? Similarly, for the same reasons, affordability, accessibility, usability. Um, and it was at the time when um, the, the, there was a huge crisis in primary care so a few years ago, and the, the, the crisis in primary care was beginning to unfold. Um, and actually, the, it came about because my co-founder, her father, who was in his late 50s, early 60s at the time, went to his doctor proactively and asked if he could have his cholesterol checked. And the GP said, no, you're really, I think you're pretty healthy. Um, I'm not going to do it. And it's not to criticize GPs, but he was very busy and there wasn't an incentive for him to do that. And so that's not what happened. So then we decided, well, why, why shouldn't everyone be able to access their own biological data? Why should it be continue to be owned in this sort of paternalistic, you know, please tell me, am I okay? Why, why could someone not take a more proactive step? Particularly when you're talking about diseases around cardiovascular disease or type to diabetes, things where if you take action, we, we call it a downstream ecosystem, which is a bit of a jargon phrase, but what happens after the diagnostic? So yes, you get your results. And then what? If you have an acute infection, it, you, you end up in the sick care piece. But if you're actually looking to take a proactive view on your health, it actually opens up a huge ecosystem of information, of, um, of, of work, of, of actions, 
of, 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 of you know, um, activities that you can do to improve your health. But our gateway or our belief that the, the, you can't, I mean, it's pretty much guaranteed. And I mean, there's all kinds of literature out there and studies around how goals are far more achievable if you understand your own baseline to begin with. So instead of talking about vague, you know, vague things like cholesterol or cardiovascular health, give people access to the actual information so that they know that then by taking action, they can see their levels come down or get more healthy. And they can do that in a way which is easy and they can test themselves. What we don't believe is particularly realistic. And that's kind of been borne out over the last couple of years is to, um, unless you provide someone with an ability to do it themselves through their phone or through some other means that is effectively zero cost because everyone has a phone. So there's no reader cost. And the test itself is relatively low cost. So it's not, you're not asking someone to pay 75 pounds for an at-home lab test. You can do it and you can have a stock of them in the cupboard and you can keep a check on your, you can monitor yourself as you go along. We believe that's the direction that personal diagnostics has to go in. Um, and so, yeah, we, I mean, we've, we've been, and, and obviously the NHS with the preventative health, the, the long-term plan, the, we, we felt like this, the, the first long-term plan that came out a few years ago, we felt like when we read it, it was all well and good, but there was a huge gaping hole around diagnostics, which was how is this screening going to take place? And now, obviously, even routine blood testing can't happen at primary care. So in GP surgeries, really, anymore, it's very difficult to do that. So how does that happen outside of a clinical setting? Um, and how certainly how does that happen at home? Um, and so by we, we started with this constraint of trying to work backwards from how you could do it with a phone. At the time when we started the company, the, 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 there was a lot of... Um, there was a huge um, step change in the quality of um, smartphone cameras and the ability to measure very precise information. And again, when we looked at them, when we looked at the big areas, my, my father um, almost died of cardiovascular disease, he had a stroke when I was 15. And the, the catastrophic, he survived, he, he survived, but with very serious, um, uh, not side effects, very serious um, health conditions thereafter. And the, the catastrophic impact that that had, even though he survived through our entire family and our friends and the rest, we're still feeling that today. And so th that was that was there's an, that was preventable. It was cardiovascular disease. I mean, he had, you know, had hypertension, like crazy high cholesterol, but hadn't been tested and didn't have the ability, didn't have his access to his information, couldn't take any action and so on. And so I personally feel that by allowing people to have access to the information, then that means that they can make positive changes because you can connect them to this downstream ecosystem. The big problem that you have to solve, though, is around how to combine um, a hardware diagnostic with a software on a phone. That's actually quite complicated to do and quantitatively. So if you're thinking about cardiovascular disease and lots of these preventative diseases, the quantitative result matters. It's different to another lateral flow where it's like yes or no. You know, do you have an infection? Do you not? So, I mean, we're, we're fully committed to trying to make a big difference, not just in cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes, but we're about to deploy POCDOC technology in Pakistan to help the eradication of polio. Um, so we've always felt that the the use of rapid testing in healthcare systems was underutilized because they were effectively stupid bits of plastic. You know, how do you digitize these things at scale and actually use them at a population health level if you're just sending out bits of plastic? Like, how do you collect that data? So, yeah, anyway, that's 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 how we view the world. You're absolutely right. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, um, so on, and, on and I think there is something you said, Steve, which is it's a different ecosystem. <clears throat> The business of healthcare is very different than the business of sick care. 
because in the business of sick care, it starts with you getting sick, you go to the doctor, the doctor by that time you're at the emergency, you need to, inst- uh, you need to kind of figure out what's wrong with you at speed, collect information that is related to that moment in time, so on and so forth. Um, the, the business of, uh, and, and that is almost equivalent to when your car has broken down and you've taken it to the garage, right? What happens in a garage is very different than ordinary life, what happens on the road for a car. And it's the same with us. For What we had to do with the car is to create a very different ecosystem, which was based about burying enough sensors in every place that mattered in the car, collect all the information that matter, have the ability to analyze it continuously, and then create alerts only when they matter, as opposed to constantly showing people. And that we are not doing with our body. If we can, and that's what we're trying to create in Babylon, is a business that instead of waiting for you to get sick, but it collects so much data from you and be able to put this data, not in the old fashioned data warehouses or lakes, but in data fabrics that will make them instantaneously available to artificial intelligence who can continuously monitor it and alert, provide insight and alerts when necessary, help people to have goals and help them to have plans of how to achieve those goals and then monitor them continuously through it and reward them when they get it. If you could do that, if you can build that infrastructure, then it's fundamental. And that the reason we like the model of value-based care, as they call it in the United States, where you are given the entire budget for the member and said, okay, we were gonna spend $10,000, $2,000, whatever it is on this person this year. That's yours, go do whatever you wanna do with it. Because then we can invest heavily in where our mouth is upfront. Well, you're you're incentivized. I I mean, again, I don't know. I mean, I obviously don't know anything like as much about the US system as you do, but that strikes me as aligning the incentives with the person that's providing the service. Ergo, the better the service, the more efficient you are, the, the 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 better those economics look right you're you're aligning the economic incentives with the provision of care as opposed to potentially in other systems where they're not in the same place wonderful exactly right and so with this value-based care just just to touch on that is 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 that um what's the history of that in the u.s has that always been there or is this a relatively new invention no it's um it's relatively new and i think it's a very big word for just aligning incentives, right? I mean, just saying that if you're the provider, I'm not going to pay you to fix this person. I'm going to pay you uh, the budget for that person. Look after them, right? It's the right right way of doing it. And it it fundamentally changes the incentives. The reality is it's a very tiny part of the United States, a total expenditure in healthcare that goes that way. Uh, But more and more people are understanding is the right thing to do. The challenge is not the thinking, the challenge is the entire infrastructure is built around sector and its incentives. And therefore, it requires reinventing the model. In the same way, it was all about reinventing the model when uh, Tesla came in with electric cars. The reason that manufacturers of petrol guzzling cars could not create electric cars at scale was because they were trying to fit it into the ecosystem of uh, carbon economy. 
yeah. of uh, combustion engines. Um, and Tesla didn't have that worries. They had to. They could reinvent from scratch and create a dif- different ecosystem. And I think that's what we, the likes of you, as a many, many, many other fantastic digital entrepreneurs in healthcare, should come together to create that new ecosystem and the new alternative. I agree. I mean, it's like zero to one, right? You know, like Peter Thiel's book, right? Like, are you, are you, you know, are you, are you trying to? do something that's genuinely new and genuinely step change or were you just kind of iterating on you know something that slightly improves what you already have and I do think in healthcare <clears throat> is different I mean in the previous industries where I've been involved in it's you know it, it's been very dog eat dog you know there's not been, been a huge amount of collaboration but I actually feel like in healthcare because the problems are so big actually bringing people together like you say is, is really a, a much much better way of trying to create this new model of, of healthcare provision Amen. <laughs> well, look, on that, we're, we're going to go for uh, our final break. We'll be back in two minutes for the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with Ali Parza, CEO and founder of Babylon Health. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Galar Light is the quantum energy emitted from the universe, from the sun and stars. Now, Tom Palladino, a humanitarian and scalar light researcher, has created the world's only scalar light healing system, a system that can bring long-distance healing and wellness to humans, pets, and plants via a photograph. Get your free 15-day trial now at scalarlight.com. Or click on the Scalar Light banner on the UK Health Radio website. Shields like masks are top of mind right now. But did you know you have inner armor working constantly to protect you from pathogens? It keeps you healthy and thriving. It's your immune system. Ion Gut triggers the body's natural ability to support gut strength all year long. So your immune system can protect you when you need it the most. How are you treating your inner armor? Visit uk.ionbiome.com to learn more. Ion Gut. Protect what protects you. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with myself, Steve Roost, and Ali Parza, CEO and founder of Babylon Health. So... Um, in the final part of the show, there's quite a bit still I want to try and cover um, because there's just quite a lot to, to, to get through. So um, with um, just to cover off the, the, the situation or the, the, what Babylon's doing in, in Rwanda, how, um, how are you measuring the success or the impact of what you're doing in a, in, in a, in a territory like that where it's such a groundbreaking partnership, or such a groundbreaking you know, deployment, if you like? I think you might be on mute, Ali. We, we deliver today around, let's say, 5,000 consultations. Maybe the number is four one day, five another day. 5,000 consultations a day in Rwanda, where somebody who could be in a remote village can speak to a clinician within minutes, right? Right. How do you measure the success of that? I mean, I mean, that's well, I mean it's, a, it's a zero that, that, to one thing, right? Presumably they weren't, they weren't interacting with anybody before. They had no access. So it's access versus no access, right? right. 
versus in some of the richest countries in the world. My family and I have moved to Silicon Valley, California. My son wanted to see a doctor had to be done physical because they needed to get a physical examination for his sports before he could play sports. Uh, with everybody we knew, it was a cell at two months waiting time. Really? You just find access as a non-registered patient to register with somebody, find a physician to go and join them and get this done, right? And in Rwanda, you could do this within minutes, within minutes, right? So people sometimes try to complicate this. It send me, say, show me or tell me why is that success? Well, I mean, goodness sake, here is 5,000. Yeah, I don't, I mean, why <laughs> would that? a day that this is a success. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, honestly, Steve, you and I should never bother ourselves with people who try to complicate the symbol. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. It's like access versus no no access. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we did the, where we're working with PATH, which is a global NGO to do the, to do the polio project in Pakistan. So w- without the PocDoc app to manage the script. So the, the, the challenge was areas where there are polio hotspots and flare-ups are by definition rural, isolated, not connected, nowhere near, a, nowhere near a pathology lab if there is one, right? So if you want to do diagnostics, how do you do diagnostics? Well, you have to do it with a device that is universally available or almost universally available in those locations. And guess what? That's Android smartphones and smartphone tablets, right? So that, 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 that's what you have to do. And up until this point, they weren't able to do it. And so it's exactly the same way. So how do you measure that? Well, previously, they weren't able to go and test people for polio markers and polio risk factors in, you know, rural Pakistan. But, you know, that's what we're going to do. So, no, I completely, completely agree with you. Um, on the, on, obviously, Babylon's been on a huge, I mean, a huge explosive growth curve, uh, uh, particularly over the last few years, but across the whole period of time during the company. More from an advice perspective, how, how have you, I mean, how do you, what advice would you have or how have you managed that explosive growth? Because it, it must be, extru- it must, that must have been one of the biggest challenges just managing that growth and, and, and trying to keep everything on track, but still ambitious enough to continue the growth. And I don't know, what, we, what are your thoughts? This is, <clears throat> whoever tells you this is not hard, like it's hard, right? <laughs> we, we all know it's hard, right? Um, our team, I mean, our revenue grew fourfold a year, every year. That's from 5 crazy. million to 20 million to 80 million to 320 million to hopefully we last we said between 900 to a billion this year. Right. Uh, we'll see how we will do. Um, and, and when you're doing through that, basically for every four dollar, three of those dollars are new. Uh, right. Almost for every four people, three of them are new. Can you imagine That's... building a team where three person every time are new right that's cool. uh, and also the kind of person who can run a team of a thousand is different than a person who runs a team of a hundred yeah. but the person who runs a team of a thousand often comes from organizations of thousands they bring with them the culture of those organizations yeah, of the thousands that they are escaping from right yeah. some of them work out some of them end up being a disaster right yeah, and, no, yeah. and like and some of them are not a disaster they just uh, made the wrong choice or you made the wrong choice doesn't matter yeah. it is super hard super hard and it's massively risky if you're growing your business at that rate there is always a chance you fall 
right? Yeah. One risk we cannot take is with people's health. We never do. Mm-hmm. But with our businesses, that kind of growth is risky, right? Uh, how many mm-hmm. times have you and I heard Elon Musk saying that how close he was to bankruptcy all yeah, the I mean, time? What was he, single-digit days or something? He That's came to right. Tesla? Yeah. That's right. And believe me, the number of times in my career I've come through that kind of uh, moments, right? Uh, when, you're, you, when you're doubling, tripling, quadrupling, you also have a chance of losing it. Almost. Yeah. But the reason you're doing that is because you know the foundation is right. You're going to do it. And often these companies will lose it. If Tesla lost it, it was not going to be as a result of him not doing it well, but would have been as a result of the capital markets shutting up. Right. Most often when I see these things happen is you get unlucky, you fall into a period of time that the capital markets one way or another are shut. We saw yeah. that in the year 2000, 2001. We saw it in yeah. 2007, 2008. And then, then that's it. So my thing to entrepreneurs is, I don't want to sugarcoat it, coat it. It's hugely hard. It's hugely risky. But... That is the right way to do. We are all time. Even Babylon today at a billion dollar of revenue or some billion dollar of revenue is a minuscule, tiny little company. If we want to deliver our mission of become making healthcare accessible and affordable for everyone, we have thousands of folks to grow from here to be able to deliver our mission. So be resting, uh, be hubris of saying, hey, I've achieved. We haven't even began yet. If Amazon say they're in day one, we must be in minute one. Yeah, I know exactly. And I think that that's, I mean, in any industry, having that continuous drive, which, you know, I certainly do and, and, and many other successful entrepreneurs do, obviously, about how you, there's, there's, there's always growth, right? You're never the biggest fish in the pond. And there's always, particularly in, a, in, in, in healthcare, like every single person I've had on the show, and I count myself amongst this, but every single person I've had on, whether they're an entrepreneur, a leader, a clinician, they're in healthcare specifically because they have a mission to try and make some group of people's life better. And that group might be larger, it might be smaller. Sometimes it's very niche, sometimes it's global, such as yours, but that's fundamentally the mission. And so that mission really isn't ever complete. So, you know, like you said, minute one. Minute one, minute one. And you have to keep keep showing up. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that is the biggest thing that one of the biggest things that I've, I've sort of noticed over the years is that, you know, there are people who are constantly, they appreciate what the next steps are, or they're thinking about the next steps, or they're always thinking about what could come as opposed to necessarily saying, oh, okay, I've arrived, or we've arrived. It's no, 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 no. We've only just started. Like, we're not even at base camp. Like, what are we talking about here? Like, we haven't even got going. That's right. Um, so in terms of like, but what, like by the on. way, when you say we haven't got the, you, you use, we use the examples of the likes of Amazon and Tesla, uh, you know, when Amazon, we were whatever, seven years old, really, we were formed really in 2014, we launched, so now seven, seven, almost eight years old. When Amazon was eight years old, they had just lost 90% of the market. Capital. Is that right? That's what was right. that? I mean, remember in 2001, they lost 90% of their market cap. In 2003 right. and 2006, they lost another 60% of their market cap, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, in, uh, so if you look at uh, when, when those companies were at the same stage, Tesla, like, I mean, do you remember when Elon Musk was going around the Middle East trying to take his company public, private? Yeah, private uh, back only, again. He was only tw- two tw- years ago. He was only, tweeting 
Yes, only two, three years ago for $60 a share. That's what wow. it was going to take at private. Well, of course, since then, there's been share splits. But if you look at I believe if you the do like the maths, like. will be $60 a share today. And everybody thought the company is not worth anything, right? The yeah. reality is we are, what happens in this period is every company at the beginning goes through an idea. You, you test the idea. Then you go to the second stage of proving the concept. Then the third stage of scaling the company, which is what we've done now, proving it can scale. And then really the hard work starts of saying, okay, can I now build a flywheel, a machine that can sustainably at a higher quality than others, lower cost than others, generate a, a, a growth that has better economic value than everybody else. That yeah. is what you do usually between year 7, 8, 10, 12 of your uh, thing, which then you emerge out of it as Amazon did uh, 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 and the period of 2008, 2009 to 2020 happened, right? Uh, I think we still have a lot of work in front of us. I don't want to have any hubris or pretend that this job is by any stretch of imagination done, but it's just like when you and I build a house, you know exactly what you need to do. It always maybe take longer, it may cost more, mm-hmm. may it always be done as long as you're resolute and you don't change your mind. So yeah. I think our job is to just get on with it. Just don't keep dramatize going. it, just get on with it. Know exactly what you're doing, build it, well, keep going. I think that's right. And I think the biggest thing that, that's kept, and again, I've heard this repeatedly from you know founders, CEOs that I, that I that I've come on the show or that I otherwise know is that mission clarity. And I thought it was interesting that you said Babylon effectively has the same mission statement, or not just effectively, literally has the same mission statement as day one. If you have mission clarity, then you know exactly why you get out of bed every day, you know, and you could get good days or bad days, and some days you make more progress or less progress. But ultimately, if you have that mission and you know what that is, then that can sustain you through the through the good and through the bad. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and um, what, thinking kind of more about the future for the next sort of 12, 24 months, what does that look like for Babylon? Is there anything particular? That, I know that you've made a couple of acquisitions recently that, that are kind of expanding how you can, you know, just make it easier for you to deliver value-based care. But is there anything particular that's on the horizon that, 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 that is worth sort of noting? No. I mean, our job, it's not that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> or dramatic. I don't know about that. It really is the job of any other engineer. It's just building the pieces of the machine, right? And making it better, right? Constantly analyzing where can we improve the quality, increase accessibility, reduce costs. That's what we do day in, day out, right? What can we automate? Uh, what can we predict to take the cost away? How can we take a piece of the work that is done with humans digitally to take uh, to make the accessibility more? How can we make in an industry where it takes 17 years for best practice to become common practice, how can we create the foundation where everybody is aware of the same process so that we can standardize quality? That is a never-ending job. It, and and uh, you just, the worst thing is to, the worst thing is to get uh, distracted by it and just go and chase the next fad. Yeah, you have to stay on your mission. And like, out of interest, are you obvi- uh, uh, presume? I mean, one assumes that the attitudes towards your mission 
have changed from day one of the company to now. But are you still encountering kind of headwinds where people just still have their head in the sand slightly about what you're trying to do or, or still like, oh, no, you know, that won't work over here or I'm just interested, uh, just curious, or is it sort of the, 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 the genie's out the bottle? <clears throat> Look, the articles about Tesla is a fad was being written until it's, it's still being written. <laughs> the, the, the articles about um, Amazon will burn and crash was right. written in 2015, 2014, right. if you think about it. Yeah. Still, right? The reality is. Uh, and by the way, there's nothing bad because if you were doing something that everybody agreed with, then frankly, well, you're, not, you're not innovating, right? Well, you're, you're not, not changing, changing anything. You're exactly. not changing anything. You're, just you're conforming. Absolutely. So I don't have a challenge with that. My challenge is when entrepreneurs, when as we blame others for also, we believe our part. And it's bad to blame others when they believe their part. If somebody thinks right. this is not working, maybe they have an element of truth that I need to listen to what part of it is not working What's and this? how what do I make yeah. it work, right? Nobody, yeah. most people are not malicious. Most people are not bad. Most people don't want to put you down. They're mm. saying it because they believe it. The fact that they don't agree with me doesn't make them wrong. It are as I'm always thinking when somebody gives an argument that is in disagreement with us. I always kind of think they could be as right as we are. Let's go figure it out, right? Well, yeah. And like, it's like I said earlier, crave the no. You get data from the no. If someone disagrees with you, like like you say, generally they're not just being difficult, right? They, exactly. they Particularly not in healthcare, right? People believe what they're doing. And so why do they believe that? What's under that? What truth can we get to help us improve what we're doing? No, I completely agree. So just before we're coming to the end of the show, it's been awesome to have you on. Just quickly, if you're an entrepreneur and you're listening, what would be the one piece of advice that you would give them to try and to, that you would say, hold true to this to try and get you through the tough times? Or what have you used to get you through those difficult times? Kind of a mantra or anything that you go back to? I, I just think that what do you mean by tough times? If we genuinely believe about what we're trying to do, that's our belief, right? And, and you're just following your passion and your belief, what you know is the right thing to do. And uh, what tough time is often imaginary is what other people think, right? right. Uh, is the dramas you allow to happen. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit kind of, uh, you know what I mean? I'm too observed in what I do to really worry too much about these dramas. Just keep going. Just keep focus, going. focus at the end result. Don't worry about the noise around you. Good. Well, look, on that note, Ali Parza, CEO and founder of Babylon, thank you very much for coming on the Healthcare Carrot. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening. And we'll be back again next week. But thank you. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.